Hello friends, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. My name is Jeremy McCandless and you're welcome as today we close out our study in the Gospel of Mark. 45 days we've been working together through this season 6 in our journey through the entire Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And today we delve into the surprising, and yes, it has to be said, sometimes controversial conclusion of Mark's Gospel account of the life of Jesus. So welcome. Please join with us, and if you're here for the first time, why not click on the subscribe button wherever it is you get your podcasts from, and that way you will never miss another single episode, and that way you will have chosen to make the study, the in-depth study of the Bible part of the rhythm of your daily life. So with that said, we'll drop back in into the text where we left off last time, Mark 16. We're going to be looking at verses 9 to 20, and do hang around at the end, and I'll update you on what's to come. Thanks for now. You know, my wife Paula, she loves a good thriller. A body has been found, someone has been murdered in the most dreadful circumstances. How will the story end? Will there be an unexpected twist? I often tease her that this is not suitable viewing for a pastor's wife. Have you ever been in a situation, maybe reading a book or watching or listening to one, perhaps, well, there's these new long-form documentary series now like uh, The Making of a Murderer. Have you ever watched anything like that? I wonder how this story is going to end. You might even ponder the question if there's going to be a twist in the tale, a sort of a surprise at the end. Have you ever been tempted when reading a book to read the final chapter to find out what happens? Did you know that here in the UK there was a very controversial playwright, a guy called Joe Orton, and he was convicted of damaging public property while as a student he was caught defacing his local library books. As well as scribbling obscenities on them, he also tore out the last few pages of all the Agatha Christie novels, so people would get to the end and they'd never find out who'd done it. Now maybe for us, in this day and age, certainly if you're a believer, when you get to the end of reading the life of Christ, we are so familiar with what happens at the end that it kind of, well, affects, colours our reading, as it were, right from the beginning. I'm sure most of us, if not all of us, knew when we started on this long series of podcasts together, working through the Gospel of Mark, that at the end of the story we knew he would be crucified and that he was going to die. We maybe even knew that he was going to be raised up again and ascend into heaven. All these events are indeed what happen and are clearly set out in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. However, the end of Mark's account has a few extra surprises. You might say it's full of surprises to the points where questions have even been raised because of the controversial nature of this closing text as to whether it should even be in the Bible. It almost seems to be teaching that we as Christian believers should be handling snakes and drinking poisons. What's going on here? I have to say this is a very challenging piece of scripture, but it's worth getting to the bottom of it. And I would like to begin by asserting that I believe it should be in the Bible. And let me explain why I believe this, and then I'll get to the other so-called perceived problems with the text itself as we progress. 
Sometimes if you have a modern translation of the Bible, like perhaps the NIV, the New International Version, then usually before the last 11 verses, there's a little asterisk directing you to a footnote. Sometimes part of this passage is even italicized and the footnote says something like this. Some early manuscripts and other ancient versions do not have verses 9 to 20. However, it is worth noting that these verses appear in their entirety in the authorised King James Version of the Bible with no footnotes or no such qualifications. So let me try and throw some light on these queries. Let me first of all state that this portion of the text appears in every manuscript of the Bible that has ever been produced except two. And in those editions where the verses are missing, there is a blank space deliberately left to draw attention to the fact that this is not the end of the book. Rather, that there is, in their estimation, something missing from the end of the Gospel account. The two manuscripts that the verses are contained with in with are both dated around 350 AD. However, the missing verses are referred to in writings from much earlier in Christian history. A man called Irenaeus, who wrote in the latter part of the 2nd century, 150 years early, referred in depth to this closing section. And the text also appears in one of the other church fathers in the writing of a guy called Justin Martyr, who wrote about what this text says in editions printed hundreds of years earlier. So the text itself appears in all the main manuscripts, although it is fair to say it doesn't appear in a couple of early manuscripts. But then it appears in lots of writing about the Gospel of Mark that were written 100 and 150 years before even the manuscripts themselves were produced. Now that's the technical argument why I believe Mark's account doesn't end in verse 8, but there's also a very practical grammatic reason why it doesn't end there. If it ended in verse 8, it would have a very unnatural, abrupt end, and it would almost be an abnormal ending. In fact, the final sentence of verse 8 wouldn't even be complete. Mark 16.8 says, Trembling and bewildered, the woman went out and fled from the tomb, and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid, and it would stop there. Not a great way to end a gospel story, is it? Now, it's hard to pick up in the English translations, but in the original text, Mark 16, verse 8, actually ends with the word for, F-O-R. And anybody who knows anything about New Testament Greek knows you can't end a sentence with that word. It's a, a bit like ending an English sentence with the word because. You don't end a sentence or thought with the word for or because, You begin a sentence, you say you're about to present a new idea or give an explanation with the word for or because. And again, one other thing, which I think is a biggie. Do you really think that Mark would have chosen to end his gospel that way? It's just not reasonable. Because verse 8 exists to set up a situation where the apostles are scared and afraid. And then we'll see beyond that in the final closing narrative where we find Jesus appears to them one more time to help them overcome that fear and actually embolden them and commission them to go out and preach the gospel. Okay, suppose we accept this text is genuine, then the troubling short passages, the verses, are there and it's this stuff about snakes and poisons. 
Now we'll get to that, but let's first of all look and go through it verse by verse. So we've read verse 8, verse 9 and 10 says, When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, of whom he had driven seven demons, and she went and told those who had been with him who were mourning and weeping. So look, the very first person that Jesus appears to is Mary Magdalene. Now it's useful to remember that at that time, in that culture, women were really second-class citizens. The Lord really honours women here by first appearing first to a woman. The Lord is seen here to appear to Mary Magdalene, and it is she that goes and tells the disciples. And they're mourning and grieving and weeping, and she comes in and says to them, He's alive. And their response is recorded in verse 11. When they heard that Jesus was alive and she had seen him, they did not believe it. Jesus is alive, she says, but they don't believe it. How disappointing. They don't believe that what they had already been told was going to happen. Let me show you why I think this is so disappointing. Look back just a few chapters at Mark chapter 9. When Jesus says, as they were coming from the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So, did they know he was going to be raised from the dead? Yes, they did. Because he told them this just a few weeks earlier. Did they know what that meant? Yes, they did. Because we see them discuss it in that chapter, which again is only a couple of weeks ago. And it says they kept the matter to themselves, discussing what this rising from the dead meant. And later in the, cha- in the very same chapter, we are even told this. They left that place and passed through Galilee, and Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were, because he was teaching his disciples and saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into hand- the hands of men. They will kill him, and then after three days he will rise. So he's told them all this before, at least twice already. A bit more again in chapter 10. It says this, They were on their way to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, and whilst those were following were afraid, and again he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen. We are going to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him, and three days later he will rise. So there you are, at least three times they've been told by Jesus himself, and it still doesn't seem to have sunk in. And now Mary has come to them and says, look, I saw him, He's alive, just like he said he would, and they still don't believe. Okay, let's continue in the main text to see if things will improve. Afterward, Jesus appeared in different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported to the rest, but they did not believe them either. It would almost be funny if it wasn't so tragic and so important. The Old Testament said that by two or three witnesses should everything be established. So here we have the testimony of Mary Magdalene and the witness of of these two ex-followers of the Lord traveling cross-country on the road to Emmaus. They come and they tell them and the disciples still don't believe it. Twice they've been told after the event and twice now they've not believed. Keep that in mind when we read the next verses. 1614. 
Later Jesus appeared to the eleven to the eleven as they were eating, and he rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him risen. So now the Lord actually appears to them, and the first thing he does is, is he rebukes them for their unbelief and what is described as hardness of heart in some translation. The picture Jesus is drawing here is of people who have a hard heart and are therefore unable to absorb what God wishes to pour into them. You see, a hard heart is like a stone. It cannot receive the message, it cannot absorb it and apply it internally. And out of that situation comes unbelief. And Jesus here firmly rebukes them for this. And then he goes on to say this in verse 16. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. And whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. So in spite of rebuking them, please note he's not saying, I'm done with you lot. He's actually saying, look, even though you're full of unbelief, I'm here now and I'm just beginning with you. And what he does, he commands them to go into the world and to tell people of the good news of his resurrection. Well, more than that, his life, his ministry, his purpose for coming and his resurrection that proves it. Now, some of the people here he is telling to go just a few minutes ago didn't even seem to believe that he had risen from the dead. But he appears to those people and he tells them to go as well. And part of what they are commissioned to do is to baptise. Now we know from Matthew, Matthew's account in his final chapter 28, the full text says they are going to make disciples and to baptise them in the name of Jesus and they shall be saved. And here Mark also mentions that they should baptise. Believe and be baptised and you will be saved. Not believe and be baptised in order to be saved, but believe and baptise because you have been saved. So he gives them a commission and he makes them a promise. But this is where we get the really big surprise. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons. They will speak in you, which means other tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt at all. And they will place their hands on the sick and they will get well. So he commissions them and he makes a promise And he lists five miraculous signs. Let me just list them for you. Cast out demons, speak with tongues, handle snakes, drink deadly poisons and heal the sick. So what does that all mean? Well, let me tell you what I believe it definitely does not say. It does not say that these signs will follow all who believe. It does not say these signs will follow everyone who believes either. No, what it means is that these signs will be seen amongst this believing group worldwide. Individuals within that worldwide group. Within the family of believers worldwide, these signs will be witnessed. But he then tells us the purpose of these signs. Now, by not saying they're not signs that will follow every single individual who believe, this kiboshes that theory that only those who demonstrate these signs are really saved. So the Lord Jesus then says, after he spoke with them, he was taken up into heaven and sat at the right hand of God. So the next question we might reasonably ask is when might these signs occur? 
And the text continues, verse 20, Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. Now, at the beginning of the preaching of the word, post the resurrection of Christ, these believers, these apostles, were given these signs to confirm this message. And that's why throughout early church history, particularly the signs and wonders mentioned in these two verses have always, for thousands of years, up until quite recently really, been referred to as apostolic signs or also described as confirming signs. Now let me add this. In my opinion, some of these confirming signs ceased after the apostolic era. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 2, it actually tells us that that will be the case. It says, This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. It says in Hebrews 2.4, God also testified to it by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, I believe that there is biblical evidence to say that the signs, particularly the more dramatic ones, if you think about it, they're not specifically mentioned later in the pastoral letters of Paul or Peter or even John. So it seems things like snakes and poisons would in fact cease after the apostolic era. Not saying that individual situations may occur, but as a worldwide everyday phenomenon, that seems to be what it suggests to me. And the truth of the matter is, is of course that is actually what has happened. There's absolutely no question that in church history, all these signs did occur But after the apostolic era, some of them seem to have ended. In fact, until very recently in church history, only a little over a hundred years ago, did the idea of snakes and poisons reappear in the church. Some would say really only in the last, only since what is called the modernist era, around or after the time of the First World War. I am aware that there are other Christians who believe differently in this, and I'm absolutely fine with that. And I look forward to meeting in heaven those who teach or think differently to me on this. But that's my position. I do, of course, believe that we are called and we still today see people made well, that hands are indeed placed on sick people, people are prayed for and they get well. But some of these other signs, particularly those referring to the drinking of poison and the picking up of snakes, You'll not be surprised to hear me say I'm not exactly comfortable with those. Okay, this passage closes, as it should do, in the very last two verses with Christ ascending to the God's right hand. So we see after the Lord has spoken to them, to the disciples, we see he descends into heaven and sits at the right hand side of God. And please note that it says Jesus is right now sitting on the right hand side of God, interceding on our behalf. He's not sitting on a throne judging yet. At this time, he sits at the right hand of his Father in the position of an advocate, one who offers prayer on behalf of you and me, like a great high priest offering intercession for us. And note the apostles were commanded at this point by Jesus, just prior to his ascension, to go out and preach the word and to baptize in his name. 
And do you know what various church traditions and reports happened following on from when these apostles were told to do this after they'd received this command? Well, there's evidence that Peter went to Babylon and Rome, where he was actually crucified upside down, believe it or not. Andrew went to southern Russia and Turkey, evangelizing. James, the son of Zebedee, visited Spain, and upon return to his, the Middle East, he was also killed by Herod Agrippa. John went into Turkey, including Ephesus. Philip went to Western Europe, and one tradition says that he as far west as France. Bartholomew and Nathaniel went to what we would today call modern-day Iran, and then further east into Asia Minor and Turkey. And they also suffered for their faith. They were murdered, skinned, alive and beheaded. Tradition says Thomas preached in Persia and that he fact met the wise men who had travelled to see the newborn king and he baptised them. Then he is supposed to have taken them with him to India. Matthew is reported as staying in the Holy Land for a further 15 years and then went on to Persia and Ethiopia. And James, the son of Alphaeus, took the message into Syria, Jude to Armenia and modern-day Iraq. Simon the Canaanite travelled to Mesopotamia, Greece and areas like that. Spain and some even, Simon said, reached Britain where he met up with Joseph of Arimathea. Now, many of those are just traditions, regardless of whether the actual specifics are wholly true, we cannot be sure. But we do know that many of the disciples were martyred. But the big point I want to make is that they went everywhere and they told just about everyone. And Mark finishes the gospel by saying that these believers, these guys, actually did finally what they told him to do. So let me sum all this up by saying how I believe this applies to us today. This message is really quite straightforward, really, in that Jesus is seen to arise and commission his disciples. He arose and told them to go and preach the gospel to the whole world, and that still applies to us today. But how much of it applies to us today? Well, firstly, I have to be very clear and say I don't believe we should be in the position of drinking poison or handling snakes. I hope you're relieved about that. And it's actually worth noting that four of these apostolic signs were reported as having occurred in the book of Acts in the story of the early church, early evangelism. So the apostolic signs and wonders are recorded for us in the book of Acts. That's why it's called the Acts of the Apostles, for that very reason. So it's fair to say there's a difference of opinion as to how and which of these signs still apply for us today. But I, what I can say is which of them still definitely does apply to us today. Look again at verse 15. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Now could 11 people, could 11 people really fulfill that commandment on their own? No, of course they couldn't. Matthew tells us a little more in his account of the commission. He says, preach the gospel to all creation and he adds to the end of the age. So that means that commission applies not only to them, but to us today and to every believer that follows on. To all believers, always, until this is finally done. Now these guys struggled with unbelief, yet they were still told to, when they were still told to do it, they still went. And when we believe, we should go. 
What's our excuse not to? With great respect, the vast majority of us living in the world will not face anything like the opposition or persecution or even the potential of martyrdom that they did. Now you may remember a few episodes ago we talked about Joseph and Nicodemus, probably a couple of weeks ago, two men who should have been in great fear. The disciples, it turns out, were quite right to be in fear because many of them lost their lives in doing this. Yet they still overcame their fear and they did what the Lord commanded. So we have no excuse. Now I have suggested in this lengthy series, and I'll say it again, if we think of ourselves when we're fearful, then it's likely we'll remain silent. But if you think compassionately about others and about what the Lord has done to you, then you will tell others because of what it meant to you. However, friend, if you remain silent, others will in effect The bottom line is other people are going to stay trapped in broken lives. We should think of them and think about the Lord and speak about what he has done for us and them. Because if we remain silent, other people remain trapped. But if we speak out, others can be set free. Okay, my friends, that's it for today. I hope that's really brought together this whole amazing Gospel of Mark. There's been a real urgency about it, packing very much the same story as the other longer Gospel accounts into 16 amazing short but compulsive chapters. And I hope by going through it together, you can consider, particularly having heard this closing episode, the impact it can have on others by sharing the message of Jesus Christ as Mark shared in his Gospel accounts, urging other people to hear this message so they can be set free from their spiritual struggles in this life and know the forgiveness of God. So with that said, we'll close out season six. Now we're going to go back into the Old Testament and we're going to spend, I would estimate, 30 to 35 days working through the book of Leviticus next. But before we do that, we're going to have a couple of bonus episodes just to run us up to the weekend. I don't like to begin a new season and a new book halfway through a week. So we launch off bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and ready to hear what God's going to tell us through the book of Leviticus on Monday. But do hang around because there's going to be one, maybe two bonus episodes where I'm going to tell you about a new podcast series I'm hoping to launch in a couple of weeks. So hang around for that and then I'll see you very soon on the Bible Project Daily Podcast as we continue our journey together through the entire Bible, this time going through the book of Leviticus. Don't forget to subscribe. I really appreciate it if you leave a review or share it on social media because that helps get this amazing text which we believe is the word of God in front of more and more people giving them the opportunity to have their life transformed to be set free from their spiritual struggles by the grace of God through his word. Also if you've got a moment pay a visit to the host page where you'll find a full episode notes and a transcript of every episode and plus ways other ways that you can connect to this ministry if you like. So with that all said
I'll say bye-bye for now, and I'll see you back here again very soon on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.